welcome to an episode of Practicing Anti-Racism Clinically. Practice ARC podcast is focused on combating systemic racism and elevating justice and inclusion in psychology through practical application of cultural humility and anti-racist practice in clinical settings. The podcast series will have episodes that are relevant for clinicians of varying training levels. So from new graduate student clinicians to mid-training graduate student clinicians to supervisors or faculty and racial identities, for example, white or um, minority clinicians. In this episode, we will dive deeper into clinical practice with certain vulnerable populations. And for today, we are your hosts, Jenny Min and Gina Irado. We are clinical psychology PhD students at Oklahoma State University. Today, we are so fortunate to be joined by Dr. Watermeyer. Dr. Watermeyer trained as a clinical psychologist at the University of Cape Town before completing a doctorate in psychology, focusing on disability studies at Stellenbosch University. He was first editor of South Africa's first major text in disability studies entitled Disability and Social Change, a South African Agenda, published in 2006. His second book, Towards a Contextual Psychology of Disabilism, was published international, internationally by Rutledge in 2013. His most recent book is the Paul Grave Handbook of Disability and Citizenship in the Global South, which is edited by B. Watermeyer, Jay McKenzie, and L. Swartz. Dr. Watermeyer has an extensive list of international journal publications, book chapters, and media appearances as a disability scholar and activist. He teaches on postgraduate programs in disability and clinical psychology, as well as guest lecturing in medicine and rehabilitation science. Welcome, Dr. Watermeyer. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for that, uh, that lovely welcome. <laughs> Thank you for being here. My pleasure. With Dr. Watermile, we will discuss working with clients with disabilities today. So our very first question is, where do we begin as therapists that work with uh, clients with disabilities, and how do we make that work in an inclusive way? Where do we begin? <clears throat> well, the short answer is that we need to begin with ourselves. You know, for me, when we are working with any uh, client population uh, that has an identity different to ours, we need to begin by understanding our relationship with that identity and our relationship with difference in general as clinicians. When we talk about disability, I think it's particularly uh, strongly the case. Um, and it's for the following reason. Disability is very evocative to us. Um, it presses our buttons emotionally um, because it tends to raise in us existential anxieties, which are which we all carry. Um, those anxieties are to do with things like our own bodily frailty, the reality that our bodies are changing and that our bodies are impermanent, that we are all susceptible to illness. Um, it introduces to us issues to do with our, with our own mortality. And because of that, um, we find that around disability, um, we have this experience of being emotionally charged. There's an emotional valency around disability, which, which tells us, and often it, is, it involves anxiety, and there's, there's no shame in this at all. You know, everyone has a degree of anxiety around disability. And what this tells us is that 
is that disability raises difficult existential issues in all of us. Um, I mean, some have said that part of what makes disability difficult is that it reminds us of things we'd rather forget. It reminds us of the reality of the frailty of the body. What that means is that um, when we are confronted with someone with a disability, and so it may be a client, what tends to happen is that um, is that our own vulnerabilities, which we would rather disown or disavow, are raised in us, and we are very prone at those times to project to project those vulnerabilities onto our client. In other words, we find that we can quite easily, sort of unthinkingly, believe that we know something about our client's internal world, that we know something about her, something about how she feels about herself, something about how she moves through the world, what it feels like to be her, something about what it feels like for her to be in the room with us right now, even though we don't know her at all. Those feelings and imaginings are nothing to do with our client, they're actually our own. And they're to do with our own relationship with disability. Um, because they're about our own anxieties and the anxieties that are raised by disability. If we are to work with our clients with disabilities in a way which, in which the room and the relationship between us is clear of projections, where we aren't imagining that we know what the, the patient's experience or the client's experience is, um, but are able to really open our ears and our eyes to listening in a real way, and of course that's the most important thing we can do, as therapists, in order to, to do that, what we have to do is sort of clear away our projections through understanding our own relationship with disability. And that means uh, confronting one's own fears and worries about the reality of what we all live with as human beings. And that's the reality of the frailty of the body. It's something which, you know, rather than being something which divides us, disability and the reality that all of our bodies are frail and impermanent, that's actually something which, which we all have in common. It's something which brings us together. But we need to have confronted that and worked with it uh, in order, in our own lives, in order to get over the anxiety we have about relating to people with disabilities, that anxiety which tends to tell us that they are somehow intrinsically different to us. They're not. Uh, they are just human beings like, you know, like you and I. And, and I say, I say, I, I am a disabled person myself um, or a person with disability. I mean, I use both terms. Um, and so once we have really worked with our anxieties about what disability brings, um, then we're beginning to get to a point where the air is a bit clearer uh, between us and the, the client with disability we're working with, and we're, we're more able to, to listen in a way which is not full of our own projections and imaginings, but realizes that we are just sitting with another human being, a human being who lives in a particular situation, which is with a body that has functional limitation or impairment of some sort, but really just a human being, um, you know, like, like any of us um, who we can relate to in, the, in that way. So, so, you know, I said it was a short answer. There was quite a long answer. The important thing is that we begin with ourselves. Um, you know, that we begin with really, with a real encounter with our own feelings about disability, because it's those feelings that we have about disability ourselves, which um, can sometimes get in the way 
of real listening and real relating with clients with disabilities. Yeah, so really describing this internal work that the clinician needs to embark on really to kind of start assessing those like physiological and psychological reactions to the idea of disability. Absolutely. You know, and what we discover is that as in race, you know, we all, whether we are conscious of it or not, we've all undergone a racialized socialization, you know, where through our early years and formative relationships, you know, and our experience moving through the world in our communities, we've all taken in a host of signals about what race means, about what it means to live in a, in a different colored skin. We've taken those in because they're around us all over the place. We've all sort of internalized a curriculum of meanings about what it means to be black, what it means to be white. Along with that, you know, what it means to be, uh, to be Asian, what it means to be, a, to be a woman, what it means to be a man. You know, we've taken in those ideas <clears throat> and, um, and disability is no different. As we come to disability as, as therapists, we need to look back and understand our socialization and what's being signaled to us about what disability means. We've all taken in messages from the world around us about what dis- disability means in an individual life, what it does to people. We've taken in ideas about what disabled people, what it feels like to be disabled, what it's like to be disabled. We've taken in ideas about what's good for disabled people, what they need, where they belong. These are all, these ideas are all, if you like, cultural accomplishments. They're all, cult- they're all socially constructed ideas, um, which bring with them prejudiced and biased ideas uh, about the lives of people with disabilities, just like we've internalized prejudices and biases in the case of race or in the case of gender. In a very similar way, we need to look inside in a very humble and thoughtful way. We need to have conversations with one another in which we bring out what our worries and fantasies and anxieties are about people who are different to us in the sense of living with disability. We can bring those out onto the table, think about where they come from. You know, think about the experience we might have had as a seven-year-old child walking along the road and walking along Main Street in our in our town, um, holding our mother's hand when <clears throat> across the road, there was perhaps another mother who had a son who had Down syndrome. And we were walking along and we we saw this other child that looked a little bit different to us. Um and we wanted to look and we were curious and and maybe maybe your mother said quite you know in, in quite a terse way she said no no don't look and she kind of pulled you aside and said no um don't look you mustn't stare and she sort of hurried up and uh, quickened her pace to walk past the other mother and child what happened there um is a powerful set of signals about what it means to have disability. What did you internalize? What did that seven-year-old boy internalize or girl internalize at that time? Something to do with the idea of disability being something shameful, something I'm curious about, but I shouldn't look at it. It's very different to us. Those people belong in places that are different to where we belong. We should stay away from them. These are all very powerful 
and prejudiced signals, just like the, sign the, the racialized signals which we receive to do with people of, of different colors through our formative childhood years. So we need to go back um, and think about what those signals are that we received uh, and what they left us with in terms of our own anxiety-ridden fantasies and imaginings about life with disability. Um, so that we can unpack those and understand them and begin to let go of them. You know, we haven't had opportunities to get over our anxieties about disability difference because the history of disability is, as I often put it, it's the history of disability is a history of apartheid on a, on a global scale because the history of disability is one of, of segregation. You know, many or most of us have had very little opportunity through our formative years to live close to and get used to the lifestyles of people who have bodies that are different to us in terms of disability. And so it's not surprising then that we are anxious about that kind of difference, that we, that we <clears throat> have worrying ideas and concerns about what it, might, what it might be like to live with disability or to live close to someone who has disability. We haven't had a chance to, if you like, disconfirm our fantasies and our prejudices. And so there's no shame in that. Um, but what it presents to us is the reality that we have work to do in order to get over those prejudices and fantasies uh, and get to a point where we're not relating when we're in the room with a client with disability. We're not relating to a set of our own imaginings about that person's life. We're putting those imaginings aside and just opening our ears and our eyes to, to another human being and giving her or him the opportunity to just tell us who they are and what life is like for them. Yeah, it seems like even before we step into a room with a client with disability, it's just we need to process things ourselves and know what kind of beliefs we have, what kind of feelings we um, we have about people with disability so that that doesn't get in the way of that therapeutic relationship with them so that, so that we're able to listen, really listen to that person as a person. Absolutely right. You know, and, um, you know, as I, as I said, there's no, there's no shame in the fact that we have anxieties about disability. You know, there's no, the reality is we haven't, we've had very little opportunity to get over those anxieties, but as clinicians, it really is our responsibility to do that. Um, you know, when we are confronted with someone with disability, oh, what happens? I mean, imagine the situation where you say you're at a party and you walk into a room uh, and then, and you're standing with uh, some people, you know, and then into the room comes say a wheelchair user a man let's say for example a man with quadriplegia um comes into the room i mean just let's just think about what might happen and this is a maybe analogous to what might happen in the consulting room there is an anxiety that grows and it's to do with difference and it's to do with the fact that perhaps i haven't had an opportunity to engage with a man or woman who lives with quadriplegia before and so I am I'm not quite sure what to do with myself. You know, the anxiety tells me that uh, there's sort of a right set of things that I should do 
but I'm not sure what they are. I find myself clutching around for the right thing to say, the right thing to do. Should I, you know, should I um, um, go down on my haunches to be at the same level as the person, as the wheelchair user, or or would that be patronising? You know, do I look at him directly, or would that would I then be at risk of of staring? Um, there's a sense of an awkwardness and something which I'm, which I'm not quite. I'm not quite sure what to deal, how to deal with it. All of this is to do with our anxieties about difference. And it's to do with the fact that, as I began by saying, disability is exceptionally evocative to us. It presses our buttons, you know, and it raises those anxieties of what would it be like for me if I lost my ability for motor movement? What would it be like for me if I lost one of my senses? Now, how would I feel if that were the case? Um, it also raises for me the reality uh, that, like everybody else, my body will slowly decay over time, that I, I too will get old, that my senses will change, that my motor ability will change, you know, that I will be confronted with the reality of my own mortality. All of these things are raised in a moment, as that, that man, say, with quadriplegia comes into the room. And the danger is that all of my worries about myself, because that's the important thing, these are not worries about him, these are worries about me. But the danger is that those worries about myself can kind of get in the way. Because in that moment, most of us, most of the time, we don't have the insight or the self-awareness to think something like this, to think, well, oh, look, um, this man with quadriplegia with a severe physical disability comes into the room and I see that it raises these anxieties that I have about what it would be like for me to be in those circumstances. Our thoughts don't tend to go there. Instead, what tends to happen is that anxieties are raised for us about what it might be like to be to live with quadriplegia and then we project those imaginings onto the person in front of us. And we imagine then that we know something about his life something about how he feels about himself, something about his sense of self-worth, something about what it's like for him to be there at that party. And you'll know, listening to this as clinicians, that, that when one is in a situation where one believes one knows things about one's client, which one hasn't been told, then surely you're in, you're in rather dangerous territory because it means that listening has stopped. It means that you're not hearing you're hearing something inside of yourself, not hearing what's being said to you. Many people with disabilities describe having to live and relate to others in a way in which they have to spend a lot of energy, not so much just saying who they are to other people, but trying to disconfirm what other people assume about them. In other words, saying, no, I'm not that. I'm not what you think. It's not for me the way you imagine it is. Um, I am not the person that you think I am. I don't live a life that you imagine that I do. When I say disability is evocative, what I mean it is that it raises all these fantasies in us so quickly and so powerfully. And if we have strong beliefs about what life is like for other people, we're in danger then of silencing them and not giving them the opportunity to tell us what life is like for them. You know, and that's why people come to therapy. People have something to say. They want to tell us who they are. You know, tell us what things are like for them. Have someone who's really able to listen and say, I 
see. It's like that for you. I get it. It's like that for you. In order to be able to do that and really hear, one needs to have managed to clear away the clutter in the room. And with disability, there's a lot of emotional clutter, which begins with us. So we kind of been talking about these misjudgments that people make um, with people with disabilities. So what are some, I guess, common misjudgments that people can make when working with people with disabilities? Oh, there are many. Um, <clears throat> I mean, thinking <clears throat> in terms of the clinical setting, um, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is it's very common for, for non-disabled people to believe that the people with disabilities don't want to talk about disability at all, you know, that somehow it would be a terrible thing, you know, that it's something we shouldn't raise. And there's a sense of, of a sort of elephant in the room, which shouldn't be spoken about. And if we examine that assumption uh, just for a moment, we find that it really doesn't make a, a lot of sense, you know, in the, in the sense that, you know, take me, for example, as uh, someone who lives with severe visual impairment. Um, you know, the idea that, that my visual disability is something which I wouldn't want to talk about or which I wouldn't want to, if you like, be reminded of um, really is, you know, it's really quite absurd in the sense that it's something that I live with all the time. You know, it's an absolutely integral part, not only of my lifestyle and my day and, uh, you know, my way of working and doing things. It's also part of my identity, you know. And so the idea that I wouldn't want to talk about it, that doesn't really doesn't make a lot of sense. And in fact, what in my research, what most people with disabilities would say is that they, what they dread the most, what they really don't want at all, is to be related to by other people in an unreal way, where there's a sense of, of treading lightly or walking on eggs, where there's a sense in other people that there's, there's something which can't be spoken about. Um, and so the relationship then becomes tense and awkward and a bit unreal. People with disabilities would, would much rather that you come out and say what your anxiety is, what you're imagining, you know, what you're feeling, you know, ask your questions uh, about the disability. Don't be, don't be ashamed or, um, or shy about doing that. It's much better to be clear and humble and ready to be wrong um, than to maintain a relationship which feels unreal. We can't afford to do that as clinicians. So what I would suggest to clinicians who are working with people with disabilities um, is it's very likely that, you know, you haven't had the opportunity to relate closely, that closely to someone with, with that disability before. And so I would sort of really play open cards as a clinician and say, so here I am working with someone, say with a visual impairment, play open cards and say, you know, I, I don't know anything or very much about visual impairment at all. This is quite new to me, you know? And so I, I want to say now that I'm going to ask questions and some of them might be silly questions. And um, I'm sorry about that, but that's, but I want to learn from you. I want the opportunity to, to sort of make mistakes so that you can teach me, you can show me, show me what your experience is. You know, really bring it out into the open. So we aren't both tiptoeing around a kind of political correctness, um, but instead we're relating in a real way as two human beings. 
um, you know, and when that happens, in a way, you know, the disability, it always has importance, you know, because it impacts on people's lives. It can make life very difficult um, for people with disabilities in ways I'll explain just now. But in another way, when one interacts in that, in that real way, um, it can also sort of lose its relevance because what happens then is we are more or less then reduced to just two people, um, two people in a room um, who are communicating with one another and trying to find out uh, about one another's worlds. Well, in particular, you're finding out about the client's world because you're the therapist, but you see what I'm getting at. Um, just two people relating. Um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that did. So, you know, a lot of the times we feel these like anxieties, um, have all these beliefs. So, and then um, that would cause us to kind of tiptoe around or not ask because we're not sure. And then that in, its, in and of itself is not good, especially in a, you know, therapy setting. Um, so it's important to be open, be o- okay and vulnerable and be okay with asking questions and okay with being wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I like what you said. Be okay with being vulnerable, Um, you know, and uh, and to to let yourself be open to learning. You know, if this is one thing we need to remember in all circumstances as clinicians is that we need to be able to learn from the client. Um, And that means not have prior judgments, not have our own conclusions or our own assumptions, but constantly be open to the experience of being put right by the client, being told uh, in a a slightly more uh, refined and specific way than before, exactly what the experience is like, so that we can, through that, build a more and more accurate picture in our minds of what the client's internal world is like. And it's, it's through that that real empathy, real containment grow, you know, and of course that is therapeutically very important. Yeah, absolutely. I have been taking just so many notes on everything you're saying, Dr. Watermeyer, and specifically talking about like hearing what's inside of yourself when you are listening to like your own socialization or prejudgments Um, that that listening to your client stops. And I just think that is such a powerful message to have conveyed. And we have another question on like socialization for you. Um, What issues do we need to think about in relationship, like in relation to the socialization of people with congenital disabilities? In any um, situation of social inequality where people of a particular identity <clears throat> are oppressed and marginalized in 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 certain ways. Um, the question of the extent to which those oppressive relationships are internalized by members of that of that oppressed group, you know, that's always an important question. So what do I mean by that? Is that oppression becomes internalized um, through socialization um, because it's not just you know, and so thinking about race, for example, um, it's inevitable that to some extent, um, members of oppressed racial minorities or oppressed racial groups um, 
through extended socialization in environments where devaluing ideas are passed around um, about people of their identity, that some of those some of those ideas creep in and become internalized. And that's, you know, and that's where, where oppression really uh, is at its most powerful, is when those devaluing ideas about oneself actually get inside of oneself. You know? And, and uh, you know, I'm not, you know, this is not me who's saying this, but, you know, I could refer to a, a whole clutch of writers from the Black Consciousness Movement who would, who would say exactly the same thing. You know, coming from South Africa, I immediately think of Steve Biko, um, you know, who talks about how um, if we are to overcome inequality, uh, overcome relationships of social oppression, that members of the oppressed group need to look inside as well and understand the ways in which they've internalized devaluing ideas about themselves. And so this is as relevant in the case of disability as, it, as, in, as in the case of other, other forms of, of identity and difference, and particularly perhaps in the case of congenital disability. So when, when we talk about congenital disability, we're talking about um, people who have lived with a particular kind of disability since early childhood or since birth. And so they've grown up um, surrounded by responses to their body, which is a different body um, to those of, to, to the bodies of their peers. And what does that mean? You know, we are shaped powerfully, our, our personality and our sense of ourselves, of who we are, is powerfully shaped by experiences of mirroring, which we get from the world around us. And that begins, you know, with the baby's experience of herself. Where did she see herself for the first time? She sees herself in her mother's face, you know, and in the expression, the facial expression which, which her mother um, directs towards her tells her something about who she is, you know, because her mother is reflecting something back at her, reflecting herself back at her, mirroring back to her the sense of who she is. You know, is she valuable? Is she precious? Is she beautiful? You know, um, is she important? Um, and so what gets mirrored back, not just through the face of, of the mother in early life or the father, um, but mirrored back to us in all sorts of interactions, in, in all sorts of ways, you know, through the course of our lives, that shapes who we are and shapes, very much shapes our sense of ourselves. And in the case of, of disability um, and people who grow up with bodies that are different, so some sort of visible disability, it might be a sensory impairment, it might be a physical impairment, it might be an intellectual disability, it might be um, cerebral palsy, it might be Down syndrome, um, whatever the difference is, uh, children and young people grow up with this constant experience of having, them, having other people's response to them mirrored back from the world. And sadly and painfully, um, those mirroring experiences often carry meanings which are devaluing. You know, they probably carry anxiety from parents who may be um, observing their child with a sense of worry and uncertainty about, about how to care for her, a worry about her future, 
um, a worry and a dismay about the fact that she's different to her peers and a concern that she won't be able to feel okay about herself or manage her world all right. You know, and so what's happening there right from the beginning is potentially that that girl has an experience instead of her parents mirroring back something to do with pride and, and love. I mean, there probably is love, um, but there's also something else. I mean, almost certainly it's love, but there's something else too. You know, and that something might be uh, a sense that something is wrong with her, a sense perhaps that there might be some shame lurking there somewhere. There might be some anxiety about whether she'll cope, you know, where other children perhaps are getting messages of faith from parents. Uh, the child with disability might be getting a sense consciously or, or unconsciously from her parents that her parents are really worried about whether she's able to cope. You know, and if others are worried, particularly in our formative relationships, are worried about whether we're able to cope, then of course we're going to worry ourselves, you know, because everybody needs someone to be to have faith in them um you know that sense of self-assurance and confidence in our ability it doesn't and in our creativity it doesn't kind of spring from within in a magical way we have to get that sense of confidence from somebody you know and these sorts of relationships you know these sorts of experiences um in relationships around disability um can be troubled in a way which causes people with disabilities as they grow up to internalize negative assumptions about their own potential, um, about their identity, a sense of their themselves somehow being damaged. Um, they may have, have messages mirrored back to them, which are distancing and which are rejecting. Perhaps it happens, you know, on the, on the school playing field, you know, perhaps it happens uh, at, in cultural events, recreational activities, religious communities, um, experiences of being rejected, of being distanced, which lead to the internalization of a sense that one is of little value or less value, internalization of a sense that perhaps one doesn't belong, uh, that there's something wrong with you and that that something is to do with your body and what's wrong with your body and you can't participate the way that others do um, because there's something wrong with you and that your place is, is sort of outside, not belonging with others. Sadly, our societies are absolutely saturated with these kinds of messages about disability and about people with disabilities. And of course, children and young people, as they grow up with congenital disabilities, they internalize these messages. And so our work as clinicians, you know, a very important part of our work as clinicians is to really examine what's been taken in in experiences of mirroring by the people with disabilities that we work with. You know, what have they been told about who they are? What have they been shown about who they are, about what their value is, about where they belong? What mistaken assumptions, what wrong prejudiced ideas about themselves have they taken in? The more we can identify what those are and where they came from, the more our client will become conscious of them herself. Because until you become conscious of those sorts of assumptions about yourself, you don't see them at all because they're a lens that you look through. They're all kind of assumed, um, you know, rather than something which one can identify. It's just the way things have always been. It's our work as clinicians to make those invisible assumptions and unconscious ideas about ourselves, about, you know, that people with disabilities may have about themselves to, to bring them to consciousness, to point them out 
to say, oh, but that's interesting, you know, that you feel that way about yourself. Where did that come from? Where did you first hear that message? You know, what was it about that interaction that you had, you know, at Sunday school or at the mosque or wherever it was, um, you know, which left you feeling that way about yourself? What was the message that you took away? What did you believe that people felt about you and your worth? These are all aspects of what I would call internalized depression. You know, and if we, are go if we are going to make real progress towards empowerment of people with disabilities who around the world you know, continue to live, often live profoundly marginal lives, if we're going to make real progress towards empowerment, we need to bring these painful experiences and the meanings that are contained in them, we need to bring them out into the open to make them conscious to help our clients grieve for the lost years and the lost sense of self and the pain of having taken in devaluing ideas about themselves in a way which allows for those ideas to be, to be let go of and to be replaced with new experiences of mirroring from you, the therapist, and from others you know, towards building a new, more valued sense of self where disability is not a sign of damage. It's just an aspect of identity. Thank you so much for sharing that. And this, the connection between this like socialization, especially for like congenital disabilities to kind of our like uh, previous question where you had kind of said, like, it seems absurd for people not to connect like your disability to your identity. I feel like that was touched so much on this socialization answer of this is a part of an individual's identity. And it really would be like almost remiss of the therapist to not make those connections and to be that sounding board to point out some of those questions. Like you were saying, like, where could this have come from with internalized oppression? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I want to sort of reemphasize that, that, in all of this work, you need to be led by your client, you know, because what you need to be doing is listening extremely carefully to what this person feels about herself, you know, and these sorts of uh, these assumptions and feelings about oneself are often quite subtle and difficult to um, to identify and to to really understand. Um, one needs to be led by the client um, in finding out about her experience of her world, her experience of her own internal life, her experience of her relationships and how she feels she fits into those relationships, what she feels is valuable about her, what she feels is wrong with her, and, 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 what, and where those ideas, where they sprang from in her socialization. Um, you know, part of what is, what's hard about disability and what makes internalized depression in disability such a stubborn and a difficult thing is the following. <clears throat> you know, when, when one talks about racism, for example, racism also, of course it can be very subtle, but generally I would argue that when racism is happening when someone is behaving in a racist way uh, an oppressive way towards a member of a racial minority group um it's quite 
it's relatively easy to identify that racist behavior and that racist person as a bigot and someone who is doing something wrong, someone who is, who is committing a social injustice, who is doing something oppressive and harmful. I mean, it can be subtle, but it's also relatively clear. It can be made relatively clear, if you like, who is doing the wrong thing in that interaction, you know, who, who is maintaining the relationship of inequality in a harmful way, in a bigoted way. Now, in disability, the problem is that with people with disabilities, oppressive behavior can very, very often come in the form of care. Because, you know, families that are very caring and have the best intentions and are full of love for a child or a young person with disability may also at the same time carry deeply limiting beliefs about the potential of people with disabilities and consequently of the potential of say that young person in the family who lives with disability. Um, they may have deeply prejudiced and limiting beliefs about what she is able to achieve, about how well she is able to feel about herself, about whether she's able to function in relationships, whether she's able to, to meet and you know, find a partner and marry perhaps, um, deeply limiting beliefs about her potential, you know, which don't come out of hatred or bigotry. Um, they are cloaked, clothed in care and love, um, but nevertheless are limiting and prejudiced ideas. Now, it's far more difficult for that young person with disability to see clearly that the way that her loved ones are treating her carries with it a degree of oppression and, a, of, and a degree of diminishing of her. It's much harder for her to do that because they are her loved ones. She might be dependent on them for self-care, you know, in terms of her activities of daily living, her daily routine. You know, maybe she needs assistance with, with activities of daily living. You know, maybe she needs assistance with a range of things with her work, with her schoolwork, whatever the case may be, it's very hard to meaningfully separate um, from people who you need physically and who are your close loved ones and to recognize that some of the ways in which they treat you were actually harmful, that they harmed your sense of self, that they limited who it was you felt, felt you could be, that they caused you to internalize um, self-limiting assumptions about your potential, you see. And so with disability, um, in a sense, it's that much harder to identify who the sort of villains of oppression are, if you like, you know, who the real oppressors are. Um, so, you know, I know, and I'm speaking a little bit facetiously because, you know, the question of who the real oppressors are is never a simple question. And if, it, if we think it is simple, then we're probably missing something. But with disability, it's that much more complicated um, because, because with disability, oppression and care are often deeply tangled up with one another. Yeah, and that must not help with like the internalization of these messages that people are getting because if it's obviously antagonistic versus it's wrapped in care and love, 
it's I don't feel like it's just going to be easier to internalize these messages that are coming to you. Absolutely. It's much more difficult to to see them for what they are and to sort of take some of it and leave the rest behind, you know, say yes to some of it and no to the rest. Um, because they are these are messages which are wrapped in care. And we're also talking about, particularly with congenital disability and internalized depression, we're talking about relationships that have been that way for a person's entire life, you know. And so if you've never known anything different, you know, all we have to work with as we grow up and understand who we are and what our place in society is, all we have to go on is what's mirrored back to us by those in our formative relationships, you know. And so there can be an enormous journey to travel, um, enormous amount of work to be done in order to really unpick and unpack those formative relationships, you know, and see the ways in which, yes, I was loved and I was cared for, but also I took in some ideas from my parents or from others, or from my teachers, from health professionals that I, were involved in my life for much of my childhood. I took in ideas from those people about disability and myself, which caused me to believe that my potential was limited, which caused me to believe that I didn't have a right to be with other children. I didn't have a right to belong. I didn't have a right to participate fully in the activities of my community. And to see that I've internalized those things and to, to start beginning to say no to them. So how might race, ethnicity, and gender identity intersect with disability that we need to think about as psychotherapists? Well, I mean, they, they do. They do intersect with disability. You know, and, and we know that, <clears throat> that, that intersecting, intersecting identities um, lead to experiences of, of inequality and disadvantage, which are which have a sort of organismic interaction with one another where sometimes or quite often the whole in terms of a, a complex experience of disadvantage is more than the sum of its parts. So we do need to be thinking about that. Um, we need to be considering um, how it was that different parts of our client's identity um, evoked different responses from the world as she was growing up. You know, in terms of the fact that perhaps we're talking about a young person, a young woman um, who is a member of an ethnic minority, um, you know, say she's a member of, um, say she's an Asian American um, who also has a disability, you know. And so there are going to be cross-cutting aspects of, of those three identities, her gender, her ethnic identity, and her disability, um, which are all going to be evoking uh, particular layers of responses in her experiences of mirroring from the world, um, which are going to be telling her who she is and what she's worth and what her potential is and where she belongs. And all of those need to be thought about. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm, this may be controversial, um, but what I have learned over you know, many years is that I do believe that disability is a form of difference which has, which has a particular profoundness about it, if you like, in the sense that, in a way, I believe that it surpasses other kinds of difference. And what do I mean by that? Um, I'm always surprised by how 
people with a range of different disabilities, even though those disabilities are very, very different. We know people with sensory impairments, people with physical impairments, people with intellectual disabilities, very, very different um, you know, bodily differences, different lifestyles emanating from um, forms of impairment. I'm always amazed at how people with different disabilities quite readily move to a place of identifying strongly with one another. Yeah, because there's something about being people who've experienced prejudice and discrimination on the basis of something to do with the body, um, which people identify in one another. You know, and they identify that there's a similarity in those experiences, you know, and so, um, and it's through that that um, you know the disability movement around the world has has grown um, slowly but steadily over the course of the last, you know, perhaps four decades, you know, to a point where, for example, we are having this conversation right now, which we probably wouldn't have been having um, a decade ago. So I, I think of disability as, as an extremely powerful and important aspect of difference in terms of identity. Um, but of course, one, one which interacts with others and where we need to be thinking, as I say, about the mirroring experiences which emanate from a world which is gendered, a world which is raced, you know, a world and also a world which has a specific set of assumptions and prejudices about disability and how those things, things interact with one another in creating a, a world of socialization which, which shapes the self of the client that you then find you're working with in your consulting room. Yeah, so these intersections can be like unifying to the community, but also intensifying like stressors and just navigating the world that we live in. Absolutely, because I mean, in many parts of the world, I mean, I think specifically about uh, South Africa, I know that this is true as well, perhaps to a slightly lesser extent in the US, you know, but economic inequality and racial inequality are to some extent superimposed, you know, and so certainly in South Africa, um, and, and I know in the, in the US as well, um, you know, if one is black, one is far more likely to be living in poverty. Um, and if that you combine that with disability, uh, that there's a powerful interaction that can happen there because, <clears throat> because disability is expensive. Um, we know, for example, that families who have a child with disability are far more likely to be under economic stress, far more likely to be poor, and far more likely to, to not be able to escape from poverty than other families, you know, because um, <clears throat> what childhood disability does is introduces a whole range of other expenses into the home. And um, there may be the expenses of transportation to um, rehabilitation sessions or transportation to a special school, which is far away. It may be to do with the fact that the child needs assistive devices, um, you know, or a special diet or special chronic medication all of those things cost money. It may be to do with the fact that the overall labor power of the household is diminished because one of the adults has to stay at home to look after a child who has a severe disability and needs you know, ongoing care. And so 
if you think about that situation where <clears throat> disability creates measurable impacts on the, the economic vulnerability of a family, overlay that um, with race and the fact that race and, uh, and poverty are, are, are very often superimposed or mirror one another, um, you will see clearly then that um, the vulnerability, you know, there's, a, there's a, an increased uh, sort of exponential vulnerability, which is to do with the fact that, that race implies an economic disadvantage, which is then exacerbated by the presence of disability in families. Yeah, so really hitting on this intersection and um, like interactions between several different areas of life and stressors, for sure. So our final question, definitely shifting gears a little bit, but our podcast has been asking all of our guests this question, um, really to just create a spotlight for another psychologist. So who is someone in the field of a psychology from a diverse or underrepresented community that you think has done some amazing work um, or deserves to be shared or recognized and just creating a spotlight on them? Um, so, sorry, do you mean some, a psychologist specifically or, or someone in disability more broadly? I think it can be any scholar, any field, as long as it's relevant. Well, when I think about someone who's been extremely formative uh, in terms of my learning and someone who is possibly, possibly the most influential writer in disability studies in the world today, um, that would be um, Professor Tom Shakespeare uh, of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, <clears throat> who is someone who lives with disability himself. Tom has, he lives with the chondroplasia, uh, which is sometimes called dwarfism. Um, and he has <clears throat> just drawn the, the discipline of disability studies, which is a, a fully-fledged discipline, which has been around since the 1970s. He's drawn it forward just profoundly um, over the course of, I would say, the last 15 years or so with an incredibly critical eye um, for, for recognizing where we need to be going in order to be braver about disability transformation. And one that includes thinking psychologically um, about what it is <clears throat> that it means um, psychologically and emotionally to live with disability in disabled societies like the ones which we find in so many parts of the world. Um, so I would really um, sort of recommend his work, um, Professor Tom Shakespeare, um, I would really recommend it very strongly as someone who has the capacity to inspire us, uh, certainly inspire me, to really think in a whole new way about disability, um, to really let go of assumptions, um, to see assumptions for what they are, um, and to really move forward into a place where we see disability exclusion and disability inequality as a social problem that doesn't just confront people with disabilities, it confronts us all and really recognize the reality that if we create societies which are more accessible to people with disabilities, we create societies which are more just altogether and more caring for all of us. Because if we think about disability, if we think about disability access, what we are doing is thinking in a very careful way about how we can create societies in which people feel a sense of belonging 
you know, societies which are more usable, which are more welcoming to all of us, which are more caring to all of us. Um, and his work really has highlighted and demonstrated that to me. So that I, I would recommend his work very highly. That's amazing. So we will include his profile and links to his work um, in our podcast information. This was so perfect. And we are so grateful for you to have a guest, for you to share, to have you as a guest, to share your thoughts with us. So thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation. Yeah. And I think we've learned a lot as hosts of this podcast. And I think hopefully our listeners are learning a lot as well, because I'm, I don't know, it's, it's eye-opening every episode that we do. um, And this episode for sure. I'm very glad to hear that. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. So Dr. Watermeyer, some of our listeners may want to get in touch with you. So could you please tell us where people can reach you? Um, I can be reached uh, on my email address. I'm always very happy to engage in a conversation. Um, and that is that my address is brian.watermayer at uct.ac.za. Brian.watermayer at uct, which stands for University of Cape Town, uct.ac.za. Perfect. We will include your email address also in your in our podcast information so that our listeners can um, get in touch with you if they would like to. That's perfect. Great. Well, thank you so much. That is all for today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Practicing Anti-Racism Clinically. This podcast was funded by an award from the APIC Call to Action on Equity, Inclusion, Justice, and Social Responsivity. Resources associated with today's episode can be found at our website at psychology.okstate.edu. That's psychology.okstate.edu. If you hover over the diversity tab, you can find the Student Diversity Committee. By clicking this link, you can find the Practice Arc podcast tab with all associated resources and supplemental materials for each episode.